0: Welcome to Addiction and the Family, Episode 11, Overcoming Loss.
1: How has addiction affected your family?
0: It robbed me of my father. Addiction's affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, It has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother.
1: It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has... Made our family quite
2: challenging. Addiction affected my family tremendously.
1: It's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't, I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction has spread not only genetically through like some of my uh,
0: relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day.
1: Welcome to Addiction in the Family a podcast by and for family members of anyone with an addiction. My name is Casey Ariaga, and I'm a social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mind Out Emotional Wellness Centers in Texas. I've led hundreds of family workshops, but I've also lived the experience of being family to addiction as both a child and adult. My wife Kira and I were in our addictions together for over a decade, and now have been in recovery together for almost 20 years. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together.
0: In this episode, Casey interviews Jack Dyson, author of Overdose, Letters from Dad, a unique and powerful book about his relationship with his adult son James, who was addicted to drugs. Jack talks about how this relationship evolved both when James was alive and then after he died of an overdose. Jack looks at not only their relationship and his understanding of what it meant, but also his own personal growth and recovery from and through the experience of losing his son. He talks about continuing their relationship through a series of letters that Jack started writing to James after his death. We'll hear that interview after a quick word from one of our sponsors.
1: Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm
0: Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. Welcome back. Loss of relationship is arguably the greatest fear that human beings have. People will risk losing their lives to avoid losing relationship with others. In light of this, it should be no surprise that one of the biggest fears that many family members have is that they will lose the person they love to addiction. Author Jack Dyson found this fear coming true when his son James died of a drug overdose just prior to entering another round of treatment, hoping to get sober one more time. Most people would think of this as losing the person they love, freezing the relationship in time, leaving nothing left to do except wish for things to go back to how they had been, or torture themselves with fantasies of getting a do-over. Jack undoubtedly experienced many of these thoughts, but he also found a way to continue their relationship and thus his own recovery and growth. He started writing his son letters. These letters eventually became the book, Overdose: Letters from Dad, which is currently available on Amazon.com, in paperback, and as an ebook. This poignant and poetic book charts a journey of grief, but also hope, that can help anybody not only to learn to cope with loss, but also to treasure the relationships they have with those who are still alive. For family members of anyone with addiction, and for those who have an addiction themselves, this book about facing and overcoming the greatest fear is truly a treasure. Casey was able to catch up with Jack for an in-depth interview, and here it is.
1: I just want to start by saying that I'm really honored to have you on Addiction and the Family. It's really rare to find a book that is so heartfelt and personal and beautifully written at the same time.
2: Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that, and I hope that it will be valuable to persons in various ways and maybe uh maybe this podcast will be a way to get the word out about the book for persons that might uh benefit from it
1: well that's certainly my hope you know if you're running a podcast or uh, writing a column or running a radio show you could have an endless stream of guests and material if you just invite people who want to promote their book but this podcast really has not been focused that way, and it's not something I was really interested in, in doing in general. But my boss, actually, I think, handed me overdose and said, like, hey, someone had handed it to her, and you know, she said, I'm really busy, I don't have time, can you read this and let me know what you think? And I opened it up and started reading just from the introduction, the first letters, and I just felt my heart being drawn in. Um, it's, again, not just beautifully written, but just the personal nature of the story. And, of course, there's a lot that's in the book, and there's a lot that's not in the book. So can you talk a little bit about your relationship with your son, James, and your journey as a parent?
2: Sure, I'd be glad to do that. It was, you know, when I say a reasonably long journey, he lived until age 34, not as long a journey as I would like for it to have been. Uh, The first years were just a delight uh, as that's what I remember them as that uh, you know we had this lively interesting uh, young life that came into our life just you know enjoyed him and I think he enjoyed us and and I think it was a was a good time for all of us it was of course it's always an adjustment for to have a kid and learn how to be a parent and all that but it was all a a very positive uh, experience in those first years. A turning point, I guess, was that his uh, mother and I divorced when he was about age five, I think. Well, she, we separated then, I guess, divorced a little later, and that was hard for him. Uh, he moved with me for me to become a single parent, and that came just at the time that I had finished my PhD and moved to uh, Arkansas, Arkansas State University. So for some period of years there, not too long, uh, I was a single parent, and we just continued to have a good relationship with each other. We had a lot of fun with each other. An example was uh, in those years I remember we used to like to to go skating. He was a good skater. I was not such a good skater, but but we had fun doing that. Also, uh, I remember in those very early years when he was just a little tight, I had an old bicycle, and I put a seat on the back of it and could strap him in that, and we would go for bicycle rides, and he just loved it. You know, he just loved it, and we took walks with each other. So that part of our relationship, you know, just meant a lot to me in terms of loving him and him loving me and so forth. A little later, he moved back to his mother's home and lived with his mother, stepfather, and and his younger sister. And uh, somewhere along the way, after a few years, he was pretty young. I don't remember exactly what the age was, but he started experimenting with uh, substances, drugs, and alcohol and uh, his life became troubled at that point. They weren't quite sure what to do, and I wasn't sure what to do. Of course, I was not living there, but the trouble became deep enough that they asked me to consider taking him back and being a single parent to him. And I said, well, sure. You know, I, I just felt like that was gonna be a very easy thing uh, because we had such a good relationship. Well, it turned out to not be easy at all. It was a very, very hard, difficult, Challenging time for both of us. And uh, he began to display, I guess, what you might call a distorted thinking. And uh, our relationship, I still loved him a lot, and he loved me, but it became much harder to like him, I guess I'd say. Uh, There was a lot of issues of trust. I think trust is a very important thing for a good relationship, and the trust had kind of flown out the window and it got very very difficult i guess an example of the difficulty of trust was that uh, at some point i uh, wouldn't go to sleep until i had my billfold and my car keys and other important things like that under my pillow uh for fear that he would you know take the car out for a spin and who knows what would happen and that and that did happen at times so it became a very 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 difficult time uh, for me he Entered treatment, I guess, the first time during that period that he was with me. And uh, of course, I had really high hopes that he was going to go to treatment and everything was going to be fine after that. And that didn't work out that way. But um, that continued on for many years. Then with his mom and and stepfather and sister, and uh, he went into a long-term kind of treatment it seemed to be working well but anyway after that he uh, he just would go to treatment and then usually not too long after that would relapse and uh, just had had a very troubled life i guess i'd say and it was sad to see that and uh, he went to the army for a while and did pretty well with that but had to leave the army because of a uh, physical injury. I think he was using the whole time that he was in the army, which is not the easiest thing to do, but he did it. And uh, he got married and had a child, then just continued to cycle back into addiction, drugs and alcohol, mostly drugs at that point, I think, and uh, would periodically get into some kind of treatment. and. just had had a life that was on thin ice, I guess I would say. It was hard for me, hard for him, hard for all of us in that circle. And then at one point, he came to me briefly, and we decided that we would see if we could get him back into the VA and get some treatment there. And that was very helpful. I mean, he was very open to it at that time, and he underwent a lot of change, and uh I, I was living in California, this place was in Arizona. So I drove out several times to see him in Arizona and, and he really was cleaning up. Oh my gosh, uh, you know, clean and sober and could have a good conversation with him and things looked like they were moving in a very good direction. That lasted about a year. And then he had some trouble in the place that he was working and just got in over his head, and decided to quit that job, and left, and went to another city in Arizona, and uh, faced—well, I guess what you face—and uh, uh, relapsed. I know that was extremely hard for him because he thought at that point his life was on a very different track, and it had been on a very different track. But he moved back to the to the original place, VA center, and they weren't too sure about even taking him in, and. Then he was going to another place, and in that period of time, he not only relapsed, but uh, died of a heroin overdose. So, that, there, of course, the story's much longer than that, but that's kind of a, a summary of, of the relationship and, the, and his life and the time that he and I had together.
1: I really appreciate you sharing that. And there are bits and pieces of that, of course, that come out throughout the book, um, but... Being able to hear it all together there, I think, is really valuable. If I may ask, I'm sure in a lot of ways you've told this story, maybe in different times and places and certainly within the book itself. But if I may ask, how does it feel for you right now emotionally to walk through that story again?
2: Well, of course, it still stirs things up. Uh, I've gone through, I think, a lot of healing since he died that the you know the first year or so maybe two or three years after he died it was it was just very very uh very hard you know going through that grief and uh it was just a, a very difficult time and i would say though that uh as time has gone on it's not as hard as it was it doesn't go away uh i still long for him and and uh kind of want to reach to him and do. But I feel much better. I've I've been able to find ways to go on with my life, and I'm sure that's what he would want me to do, and certainly I would want to do myself. Uh, But I still feel contact with him. Even, you know, this morning, for example, I I talk to him and I say, you know, be with me in this thing, guide me, you know, tell me what you want me to say. So uh, he's still with me. Uh, I don't hear a lot of direct talk from him, but I do sense things that that come from him, as I say, it was very, very hard those first years following his death and and has become quite a bit easier since that time. I think i I've been able to go on with my life and and accept that he's gone on wherever he's gone on to.
1: One of the themes that stands out in so many of your letters is hope. And can you talk about your relationship to hope in your recovery journey, and both when James was alive and then after he died?
2: Yeah, I think, yeah, hope was there. I think it's possible for there to be goodness and light that comes out of, or is related to, even the most difficult circumstances of life. Even though it's bad, or it's terrible or whatever word you'd want to use, that it's possible to hold on to the notion that it can get better. And I think the key thing in hope is to want that hope and to try to do what you can to to bring that about. In in in, in James case, we both had hope that he would get clean and sober and go on with a quote normal unquote life and that he would find better parts of him because we knew those parts were there they got covered up pretty much in the in the addiction as it as it played out and i guess also i would say there's hope that i would find better parts of me and uh, hope that even now that we can be in contact with each other while he is is gone he's dead and i'm still living and hope also that maybe at some point we will be able to be together again and communicate again. Of course, that's out of my control. But a lot of things we hope for are out of our control. But I think it's, it's very good to hold on to hope and to where you, where you can uh, do some things to bring those hopes about. The alternative to hope is hopeless. And that's,
1: that's not a good place
2: to be, I know.
1: You describe your own journey of recovery throughout the book and how important it is to you. What would you say to family members who may be listening to this and who may be considering whether or not they need recovery themselves?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, in the early times, I uh, didn't really feel like I needed any recovery. And I I think as, as time went on, I came to realize that while there was brokenness in him, there was also brokenness in me, that I had a choice. The way I thought of it sometimes was that either I could go down the drain with James where I could go on with life and uh, have a decent life myself in spite of what was going on with him. I think crucial to my coming to have greater awareness of the possibility of recovery and getting into recovery itself, I founded the 12-step group. And uh, in that, I, I guess, first of all, I found that there were other people experiencing the same thing I did. It was probably periods of a year or more I don't know how long, a long time, that I thought I was the only one who was experiencing that kind of difficulty. It took me a while to get there, but when I got there, I found that there were people experiencing very much the same thing that I was and that we could help each other. So that that opened doors for all kinds of recovery for me uh, to learn ways in which I could constructively deal with James in his struggle and also how I could take care of myself. I guess I guess I also found that there were parts of me which had been diminished, the part of my, my relationship with him that dealt with, uh, with addiction, that I longed for, hoped for healing. And uh, I found the 12 steps to be a very, very fine way of approaching that, and had some wonderful people to work with. So that was a very important part of my recovery. Clearly, uh, I uh, needed my own recovery, my own growth, my own healing. And that's still in process.
1: Beautiful. You talk about self-forgiveness in your letters. And can you talk about this part of your recovery and what you might say to other family members out there who may struggle with this?
2: Yeah. One of the things I guess that happened in my recovery was i take responsibility to become accountable. For what I had done or not done. And I, I know that I felt very strongly and still do that there were things that I did or did not do that contributed to his troubled life and his troubled state. I don't say that I caused it, I don't think I did cause it. But I think that I could have done things differently. And, uh, you know, as, as I began to look back at that, I was, was, you know, felt, oh my gosh, if I had been able to deal with that differently. Maybe there would have been some different results, maybe not. But I was uh, really hard on myself. I know that James, in a lot of his life, didn't feel at home in this world and didn't feel at home in this society and culture and family and so forth. I felt like that if circumstances had been different, including my own relationship with him, that maybe he could have been more at home here. But... I think it comes down to, I can either beat myself up or I can recognize that I did usually as best I could as his dad and forgive myself for the mistakes that I made and the shortcomings that I had. And also to try to give credit to myself for the things that I did as best I could.
1: Nice, thank you. One of the letters in the book is from James to you. I wonder, would it be okay to read that aloud?
2: Sure, that'd be okay. I, I, I guess the letters prior to that, and also in my own thinking, I was really taking myself to task for ways that I could have been better, a better dad to him, and maybe done things that would have helped his life and made his life better. Anyway, it occurred to me that he might have something to say to me along those lines. It was just an intuition, something that popped into my mind. And so the letter is uh, almost all the letters. I guess all the letters are begin hi James, but this one begins hi Dad. Geez, don't be so hard on yourself, Dad. You did a really good job of being my dad. Okay, you were not perfect, but who is? You stood by me in really hard times. I always knew that you loved me, and you did the best that you or just about anyone could do. You wanted the best for me. It was me who was messing up again and again. It was me, not you, that was throwing things off track and even into the ditch. It was me who made being a parent to me so hard. Remember that. So I think it's a very, very loving letter, and I think that captures some of the best part of him. And I feel that he, given the opportunity, would have have written or said something just exactly like
1: that. And for you, what was it, or what is it like, to hear that letter today? Well, I... It makes me feel very close to him.
2: You know, when I read it just then, I felt tears coming into my eyes because I felt like, for my side, I was trying to take responsibility for what I had done or hadn't done. And in that letter, he was stepping up and taking responsibility for what he had done and not done and how it affected me. And I just felt very deeply loved by him. Deeply loved. As I say, it brought me to tears.
1: Thank you for being willing to share such a intimate and personal moment. Yeah, well, thank you. And what a beautiful gift to offer yourself or for James to offer you from beyond. Yeah, a time when so many people would naturally question themselves and it's such a normal thing to say, what could I have done differently? Maybe if I'd gone left instead of right or you know, looked up instead of down, all the questions that anybody asks themselves. To be able to offer this sort of thing instead.
2: Yeah, it, it's, it's a real gift. It's, it's a gift from him and it just feels so honest and so genuine from him.
1: So you saw James go in and out of treatment and recovery many times. And given that this is a podcast for family members of people with addiction, what would you want to say to family members who are listening and who may see the same pattern?
2: I think I mentioned before that the first time he went to treatment, I had a pretty naive view of it. I thought that he would go that two weeks or three weeks or whatever it was and that he'd be all fixed and that we'd have that all behind us. (laughs) And that that didn't turn out to be that way. Uh, He was in treatment so many times, I don't think we can even give an accurate count of how many times he was in treatment. But I think what I'd say to others who are facing that is that the fact that treatment becomes available again and again, and particularly that persons like James are interested in going into treatment again and again, is really a good thing, uh, really a wonderful thing. I'm I'm so grateful that we had all of the opportunities for him to go to treatment and that he had all those opportunities. Some of them we, we paid for. Uh, and, and others, we did not. Others became available, as I said, somewhere through the VA. He got some wonderful help. One well, thing I would say is uh, don't get your hopes up too high on any one treatment experience, but also appreciate opportunities to go into treatment. Because I, I, I'm convinced that James learned things, probably lots of things, some I know about, some I don't, every time he went into treatment. And uh, it became a deepened experience for him. The deepest one was uh, the last year of his life, and it was a VA experience, but it was also supplemented by other groups that he was, was, was in at the same time. I think it's just extraordinary that treatment exists. I think it's extraordinary that people can find their way to it and work through a lot of the problems that brought brokenness and troubled experiences to their life. And I'm very grateful that that exists and that we were able to do that Uh, again and again many times and I'm grateful that James wanted to do that. I think there may have been a few times that uh, he went into treatment because he didn't have any place else to go but I think for the most part he really had a deep longing to uh, undergo some healing and some growth and to get on a different life track.
0: Thank you. We'll hear more of Casey's interview with Jack after a brief word from one of our sponsors.
1: Addiction and the Family is made possible in part by you, our listeners, through the power of Patreon. If you want to help support this podcast, simply drop by our support page at patreon.com addictionandthefamily addiction and the family. Or alternatively, go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search for Addiction and the Family. Any level of support helps us carry the message, and official patrons get sneak peek excerpts from my book in progress, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions. Visit our page on Patreon for details.
0: Welcome back. Now let's hear the conclusion of Casey's interview with Jack Dyson.
1: You've got these beautiful letters that all start with Dear James, and you've got the one that starts with Dear Dad, but I'm going to ask if you can just improvise one really quickly that says, Dear Jack, that you're writing to your younger self when James is going into his first treatment center. What would you say in that letter?
2: Mm, I guess, you know, just kind of very quickly off the top of my head, I'd say, Dear Jack, I know, you've, I know this has been a very difficult time in your life, maybe the most difficult time. I'm so glad that you've been able to find an opportunity for placement for James in a treatment center and that he's willing to do that. And and I hope very much that it will be helpful for him, for him to move from brokenness to wholeness, and that it also would be helpful for you. You know, of course, in in writing as the younger Jack, I didn't really see that I needed anything at that time, but but they... uh, not only helped James, but they also made opportunities for me as part of the treatment process to come and, and I think I went to, well I know I went to my first meeting through them. I also had sessions in which they were working to do things that would be helpful for me, not only in the sense of how to relate to James and how to go from here on, but also opened the door for me to begin thinking about taking care of myself in ways that I had not before.
1: I really appreciate you sharing about your experience at that treatment center and engaging with their family program. So, I want to touch on something. You display a depth of compassion that few people find for people with addiction. And I want to ask a couple questions around that. Was this always the case? And if not, how did you come to such a compassionate place?
2: Yeah, I I think I'd say that, uh, you know, maybe a part of my spiritual life or some of the better parts of my life, had an emphasis on compassion. But I don't think I really had too much compassion for people who were experiencing addiction. Probably one of the things that helped me more than anything else, in the town that I was was living in, I got connected with kind of a whole community of 12-step people, both Al-Anon and AA people. As as I got connected with some of those people, particularly those who had been through the experience of addiction, uh, I could see that they were wonderful people. Uh, and, and that, I think, was a, an important part of beating the, the compassion that was maybe beginning to develop. I think I also, and I'm not sure exactly when or where this happened, but I think I became more in contact with my own imperfections and my own addictions. Uh, I, I didn't have much of an experience of addiction with drugs or alcohol or anything like that, but other things, including tobacco I smoked for various years, and I don't now, but that was an addiction... Addiction of uh, sweets and chocolate and things like that, and I guess there are probably other addictions as well but anyway as I came to recognize my own imperfections, I I became open to Recognizing my path and the pain and suffering that was involved in that and also for other persons who had been through that as well It's been very very important for me to experience compassion for people to have a compassionate response to me and that was a very important learning series for me to, I think, maybe become more compassionate.
1: Thank you. And as a follow-up question there, was it hard to maintain the compassion?
2: Well, I think, I guess I would say that with, with James, it would come and go. You know, there were times that I felt more compassionate and other times that I responded with judgment and anger. I think I became more compassionate as time went on. But there were times that I felt some compassion, and then it would get out of my grasp, put it that way.
1: Very understandable. Um, And it's great to hear that and just kind of hear your journey with it. So you touched on your spirituality there. Can you talk about the role spirituality and faith have played in your recovery and your relationship with James? I've had
2: some history of spiritual growth apart from James addiction and my relationship with James. So I guess what I'm saying there is that I had some kind of a spiritual basis, maybe some kind of a recognition that I'm not alone or we're not alone. That there is a reality far greater than me or any of us. And that that is the reality that uh, created us and sustains us. And does, I've come to discover more and more, that that reality does stand with us and guide us, even in the most challenging and difficult circumstances. I know, for example, I think this is in the book, I'm not sure, but shortly after I received the news that James had died and that horrible reality began to sink in, I remember saying, I can't deal with this. I don't think I can deal with this. And there was a sense, it wasn't an actual sentence that I heard, but there was a sense that came into my mind from the divine holy source that said, yes, we can. And that that was a declaration that I wasn't going to be alone, and I was not alone i sensed when james died this was just kind of an image that came into mind was that he fell into the arms uh, into the arms of a loving god and that was a comfort to, for, for me to sense that and then but i also sensed that the same god held me up then and still holds me up now one of the things i guess i'd say about the uh was an important part of the faith journey with James and me was that in that last year of his life, he had a spiritual awakening, which seemed, and I'm convinced was very genuine. And we were able to talk about that. We never had been able to talk about anything like that before. But also, I remember that there was a time or two that he and I shared a, a motel room or hotel room. I remember that when he would first wake up, he would get on his knees and say a morning prayer silently. And that was so impressive to me. And I was so glad that he had had, had that kind of uh, spiritual growth at that part of his life. Fortunately, he spent time with not only the AA group, but there was a group of people who were, they were like a religious group, and they had kind of combined recovery and 12 steps with the religious language. And he had some very good connections with some of those people and made a huge difference
1: in his life. So.
2: I think faith is just a really, really important part of the whole thing.
1: Thank you. And I'm reminded of something, you're talking about your relationship with James and being able to share that faith and spirituality towards the end. And I have a lot of family members within family workshops and in other contexts of family work around addiction who talk about or motivate themselves with just the mad scramble to try and control their loved one's recovery journey out of fear that they could die. And one of the things I I came to realize and have tried to transmit to people is that we have no control over life and death, but we do have some control over the quality of our relationships while we're still alive together. And it seems like you and James found something in there not knowing his life would end when it did, but finding a way to really enjoy or deepen the relationship you had while you were still both alive.
2: Yes, I think I think that's absolutely true, and and what a gift it was for us to be able to uh, to get to that point where, as you say, we couldn't control what was going to happen, whether he was going to live or whether he was going to die, but we could do something about the nature and the path of our relationship, and and what a gift that was to both of us. Oh my goodness!
1: Thank you. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask about one other letter in the book. And it's towards the end on pages 114 and 115. And in that letter, you talk about how you've grown from the grief of James' passing. And since the letters aren't dated, it's hard to tell how long it takes to get to that point. Can you talk about writing that letter and how that felt? Yeah. Um,
2: that sentence says, what followed from your death gave me enormous opportunity for personal growth. And it, and it did. I, you know, I'm not quite sure if there was a point at which that alive arrived or not. I think it's probably something in, in some ways which is still in process. That there's personal growth for me that is related to all that I had with him and the loss of him and the grieving of his of the loss of him. But I do think that uh, in some ways that experience with James, both before his death and after his death, was. You could argue is the most, maybe the most important thing that ever happened in my life. It clearly opened me up. It drove me to my knees in ways that I had never been before. There was a gradual change that has taken place in me. Interestingly, it's been a very positive change. I suppose a kind, a way by which a person could respond to that experience would be to become bitter. But that didn't really happen with me, fortunately. And the whole thing of personal growth and healing in my life still continues and I think in various ways it is related to
1: the experience that I had with him. And just maybe to give some experience strength and hope to any of our listeners who might be dealing with a similar experience, do you remember how long it took before you were ready to write that letter?
2: It was some years. I have no idea how long. but it, it, it was some time. And I think it uh, it uh, it's a good thing to stay with that experience and the feelings and the reflections and and so forth. And I know it didn't take place. That letter was not written immediately in the first few years at all.
1: I wouldn't think. And what helped you most to get to the point where you could write that letter? Mm. Well, I think it was probably several things.
2: I think it was being able to take the chance to share the experience with other people, sometimes in groups, sometimes with individuals. And I think just to, uh, you know, to be very honest about it, you know, to be able to put it out there on the table and look at it and to recognize that Maybe not only in this instance, but maybe as a, as a generalization in life, that hard times and extreme challenges and even suffering may be some of the very things that can open us up to growth and healing. I think that certainly was true in, in my case, not only with James, but maybe with other things as well.
1: That is really beautiful. It's been an enormous pleasure and honor to be able to do this interview with you. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would want to say to our listeners? And is there anything you'd want to say to James if he's listening to this?
2: I guess I would say to people that if you're in a situation where you have someone you love who is in the jaws of addiction, maybe we could put it that way, that it's hard to know what's going to happen. That I think it may enter your mind that that person may die. That was certainly the case with me and James. I knew that the way his life was going, it seemed to me that there was a possibility that he would die. And I guess while I would like to then been able to control it, I think it's important to recognize that I couldn't control it. And that maybe what that says is to let things go and let them play out as they're going to play out, let them emerge as they're going to emerge. One thing I would say is that if you or any of us find that that person does die, directly or indirectly as, as a result of addiction or whatever, that it's not the end of the world. I hope that doesn't happen to you. I hope it doesn't happen to anybody. But if it does, I'm convinced that you can get through it, that even things can get better. You can grow and learn and, uh, and heal. And that, that, that's a good thing.
1: Thank you so much. And is there anything that you'd want to say to James?
2: <laughs> well, wow. that's, that's a good one. I want to say to James that I love you. And I feel that my love is even deeper for you now than it was. And I somehow feel that your love for me is deeper. I still hope that you're okay. I'd love to know what you know now. (laughs) You know, we human beings are finite creatures and we can only know so much. And and I, I have a feeling that you're in a place that you have experienced ways of knowing that are so far beyond what we have. Uh, I'd I'd like to say that I I hope you and I can come together sometime and share about this whole thing. And uh, I love you. I appreciate you. I'm glad that I had you in my life, and also glad that you're still in my life. Wow.
1: Jack, that is amazingly beautiful, and I wish that for you and James as well thank you well it has been such a pleasure and um, I want to thank you for taking the time and and talking with me and bringing this message to uh, anybody who listens to this for years to come
2: and I uh, appreciate that I had the opportunity
1: well uh, again it was a pleasure thank you so much and um, you have a wonderful day
2: Okay, you too,
1: Casey. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.
2: Bye.
0: That was Jack Dyson, author of Overdose, Letters from Dad. I don't know a lot of people who have gone through what he went through. I've, I've been to a, an overdose funeral or two, but I wasn't close with the parents in those cases, and I always wondered what it was like for them. Yeah, and having
1: our own child with her own issues, um, who we've thought more than a few times we might lose her. And really being able to hear the beauty and strength of somebody who's gone through that experience, that for me has just been a fear.
0: I found that a lot of it was that Jack's continued connection with his son while he was still alive there was the continued connection of loving your son right where he is and then after he had passed away there was the continued connection of the letter writing and keeping it alive keeping him alive really in in that way and then at the end of the interview just hearing jack's belief system and you know somebody that really lives their beliefs that was beautiful
1: it really was and it was a testament to the power of recovery not just for the person with addiction but the power and i'm going to say the importance of recovery for everyone in the family
0: well i'll be hugging my kid a little tighter tonight i think
1: me too Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about Addiction and the Family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer on the show or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictioninthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter.
0: Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga. Music by Casey.